told me <laughs> he told me he wanted to be short. He said, I hope you only have one point. And I said, I always only have one point. I rattle. <laughs> so my wife and I were listening to some CDs the other day, and we realized that Pastor Largent starts every one of his sermons with the same three words. Anybody know what they are? Am I on? <laughs> so I just told Dan I would use this and not mess around with that. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. As I was considering what to preach on and praying about it, I, I realized that Pastor had preached on the book of Philippians last fall, and uh, he had mentioned several times while he was doing that series of sermons that he was preaching a topical series. And so I considered some other things, but I kept coming back to this, so hopefully it won't be a repeat, and hopefully you'll find it a blessing. Um, we actually, when we were in... Um, camp a couple of probably two weeks ago up at Northland with the teens they had some lessons that week that were also taken from the book of Philippians so I picked up a few things there but when pastor was preaching on the when he was doing that topical series last fall when he was preaching through the book of Philippians one of the things that he asked several times was what is your goal for Westwood Heights Baptist Church or what is our goal for Westwood Heights Baptist Church? And what is our goal for any church as, a, as members of the body of Christ? And so I just wanted to look at a couple of verses tonight and pull some things out. And uh, certainly I don't have all of the answers as far as how to lay out exactly and define what our goals are. But at least I thought these verses would give us some things to think about. Um, so you follow along as I read. I'm just going to start with three verses, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would uh, give me the words to say that everything that is spoken will be only used for your glory to edify this group of believers. I pray that you'll give us wisdom and reveal to us the true meaning of your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, verse 11 makes it clear, verse 11 of chap both chapter 1 and chapter 2, that our ultimate goal as a church is to glorify God. But how do we do that? How do we, in practice, how do we do that? How do we do that on a daily basis? Well, in verses 9 through 11, Paul is writing this, and he's writing this to a, to a group of believers that, by most standards, I mean, if you study the Scriptures and you look at the other letters that he wrote, you would come to the conclusion, I'm sure, that the Philippians were a mature group of believers compared to most that he wrote letters to, certainly the Corinthians. And yet, you know, there are always things that they can work on, that things that they need to improve on. And he tells them in verse 9 that his desire is that they grow in love. And as they do that, they're going to be more effective in their ministry. They're going to glorify God more in their lives. And he tells them that they can do that, uh, that their love is to be anchored or built on two things, knowledge and judgment or discernment. And... 
This kind of love that, that Paul is encouraging them to grow in is the highest form of love. It is a lasting, unconditional commitment. It's not based on unstable emotions or feelings. It's based on the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for us. It's, it's, it's the kind of love that, that is going to stick it out to the end. It's not the kind of, it's not the kind of thing where uh, you just give up when times get tough or when the enthusiasm wears off or when the excitement's over. It's a commitment that he's encouraging them to have as a group of believers, that they are to, they are to stick it out until the end. Paul says in um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and this is usually the verse that I think of the most as soon as I hear the word Philippians. When I hear, when I hear someone mention the book of Philippians, I usually think of chapter 3, verse 10. Um, that and one other verse. There's, there's the verse in chapter 2 that says that someday every knee is going to bow. But I usually think of chapter 3, verse 10, because... Paul says in that verse that I may know him. That's how he starts that verse. And to me, that's always pretty amazing because a lot of times we hear of Paul being thought of as probably the most mature Christian that there's ever been. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but we think of that a lot of times. And so to think of a guy who is supposed to already be towards the high end of maturity to say that I may know him seems to almost imply that he's He's basically saying he doesn't know him, or he doesn't certainly know him as well as he would like to. So that's what Paul's getting at when he's, when he's talking to the Philippians. He says, you know, they need more knowledge of Christ. They need an increased knowledge of Christ in order to have the kind of love that is going to enable them to be as effective as they can as members of the body of Christ. And, uh, and then also discernment. Um, you know, Paul talks about discernment, and, and in this case, that means deeper insight or just the ability to decide what's really important. Um, if you look at the first phrase in chapter or in, in verse 10 of chapter, of chapter 1, it says that you may approve things that are excellent. Well, what that really means is that they will be able, he wants, his desire for them is that they will be able to distinguish between what is really important and, and what is not so important. And that's not always easy. I mean, sometimes there are things that seem important, but they're not the most important. And Paul is really trying to push them to go to a new level in order to determine that. And of course, we as a church, we have to make decisions like that all, all the time. We have to decide, you know, whether or not something is really what we need to be focusing our attention on. And, uh, you know, we joke about things that we know are unimportant. I remember a couple of weeks ago... Um, Right after they poured the floor of that new building out there, Dan and I were talking, and, and I don't remember who all, maybe Joel and, and Brian or somebody, but, you know, we said, we need to get those lines painted on that basketball court immediately. <laughs> but, you know, we were joking about that because we know there's no eternal value, and that doesn't really mean anything. But, you know, what Paul was trying to get the Philippians to do was even focus on things that were much more important than that, but yet not the most important. Um, we're not going to read verses 12 through 18, but what, what Paul was trying to get them to do in verses 12 through 18 was understand that his imprisonment was for the benefit of the spreading of the gospel. Because they were kind of stressed out over it. They were anxious about it. They were, I mean, certainly that's, that's commendable that they were concerned about him and concerned about his needs. But yet Paul was telling them, you know, look, there's, there's more important things for you guys to be concerned about than my being in prison. And that's what he meant by telling them to be able to approve those things that are excellent, to really be able to use 
spiritual maturity to understand what's really important. And, you know, we have to make some difficult decisions sometimes. Um, I remember about four, four or five years ago in, in the church that I used to go to, uh, we had a, a man that had begun coming, and um, he, he was fairly regular, and he was, um, he was a very likable guy and seemed to get along fine. And, uh, but then shortly after he, he came, he began to make it clear that he was very adamant that he disagreed with our church's position on a pre-tribulational rapture which you know might seem like a minor point but um or yeah he disagreed with that because he believed in a post-tribulational rapture and you know i remember that it was getting to the point where he was actually being very verbal about it and very outspoken about it and it was to the point where it was calling you know it was causing division and strife in the church and so you know i remember talking with him and some of the other people talked with him and finally we just came to the conclusion that we were going to have to ask him to leave because it just was causing harm in the church you know he was interrupting Sunday school classes and things like that and um, but you know as a church we have to make those kind of decisions it's very difficult sometimes we don't like to put ourselves in a position where it appears that we are sitting in judgment over someone but yet according to this verse we are commanded to approve those things that are excellent we are commanded to make decisions about what is really important um you know, we're not going to be an everything-goes church. We know that. I mean, obviously, we're not the biggest church in town. And, you know, we're very, we're very clear about our position on things. And we're not going to apologize for that. You know, we're, uh, you know, we're not going to tolerate someone coming in and promoting homosexuality or denying the deity of Christ, things that we believe are clearly taught in Scripture. We are going to, we are going to do what this verse tells us to do we are going to approve those things that are excellent and we're going to have to make some of those difficult decisions and then the next phrase in verse 10 that you may be sincere and without offense sincere here means morally pure um, when i'm faced with temptation sometimes and i'm even uncertain as to what it is that i'm considering doing if i'm uncertain as to whether it's right or wrong I usually try to evaluate my options in light of Ephesians 5.27, which says, you don't have to turn there, but it says that he, and of course he being Christ, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. And when I think of that verse, and when I'm tempted sometimes to do things that, that are questionable, or even that I know are wrong, you know, I think about how's that going to reflect on me personally as a member of the body of Christ, but also how's that, how's that going to affect, how's that going to reflect on the church as a member of the body of Christ? And, you know, that's a very convicting verse, and it's, it's, a very, it's very helpful to me sometimes because if something even appears to be questionable, when I think of that verse, a lot of times I can just run across a few words in that verse, and I would think, that might be a spot on the church, that might be a blemish, and you know, it would be wonderful to think that someday when we stand before the Lord and he presents himself, his bride, the church, when he looks at Westwood Heights, when he looks at that portion of the body of Christ, what's he going to see? Is he going to see something glorious or is he going to see something that is tainted and, and full of spots and wrinkles and blemish? And so, you know, we have to be very careful about our behavior. Dr. Tom Farrell, who was the main speaker at camp two weeks ago, 
um, you know, he, he said something a couple of times, and it stuck with me. I think it's very appropriate in light of um, being sincere. And he said, I'm not a legalist, but I'm a loyalist, speaking, to, of course, to his obedience to Christ. And that's, you know, that's, I thought that was very good. I mean, we get accused of a lot of things. Sometimes we get accused of being legalists. But ultimately, when we stand before God, it's him that we're going to have to answer to whether or not we were loyal to him. We're not going to at that point care whether or not people criticized us for being legalists or not. So, And then the next phrase is without offense. This means that our conduct or behavior is not to lead others into sin. Uh, people watch us as Christians. You know, Pastor has reminded us of that over and over. He has... I think he's made the statement several times just in the last couple of months that as Christians, we are under the microscope whether we like it or not. And it's true. I was at work a couple of weeks ago, and I was walking down the hall, and I overheard a lady saying, uh, she said, let's run that by Doug. He's our moral compass. That made me incredibly nervous. <laughs> I mean, it really did. I, you know, I'm, I've got a long way to go. And I just thought, wow, I mean... Uh, you know, I just went back to my desk and I thought, you know, that is really true. I mean, and, you, and a lot of you know that. I mean, you know that people know that we're Christians. They know that we believe the Bible. We, they know that we claim that we're trying to live our life according to what the Bible teaches. And so they're watching us. And, you know, that just underscored for me the fact that people are really watching and paying attention. And I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences. But, you know... We are to be without offense. We are not to do things that would cause other people to stumble. And then the last part of verse 10, till the day of Christ, their sincerity and moral purity, their conduct was supposed to last to the end, till the day of Christ. The same phrase that's used to end verse 6. Um, you know, this, this, uh, this is of great concern to me sometimes. I mean, I, I just, I look around and I see people who have stumbled, people who have fallen, and I, I ask myself, you know, could that happen to me? Where am I going to be in five years? Where am I going to be in ten years? And, you know, people who seemingly were genuine in their faith are falling away. Um, you know, just three years ago, there was a a man that, that was uh, a friend of mine, and, and he worked with Alexis and I and Dave and Maylene in our uh, junior high ministry at our old church. And, um, you know, by all outward appearances, looked like a pretty, pretty genuine Christian. And, of course, I don't know his heart. I, I'm not certainly uh, up here to claim that he wasn't saved. But, you know, outwardly, he had enthusiasm. He had been very faithful to the church. He was very faithful to help us in our ministry for 10 years. And uh, had a graduated from Faith Baptist Bible College with a pastoral degree in theology. And um, three years ago, he divorced his wife and married another lady whom he'd been having an affair with and basically justified it by saying, I wasn't happy in my marriage and God would want us to be happy. You know, when something like that happens and you know someone like that that closely, you just ask yourself, well, wow, I mean... Could that happen to me if I don't stay focused on God's word? I mean, where am I going to be in five or ten years? And Dr. Tom Farrell, when he was, um, he, he preached one night when he was there on uh, 2 Timothy 4.10, which says, um, it says, For Demas, Demas hath forsaken me, 
having loved this present world and is departed. And Dr. Tom Farrell told the story of how he traveled in the 80s, his evangelistic team traveled during the 80s, and uh, one of the men on his evangelistic team that was the song leader and, and sang solos and gave testimonies and, and really seemed to be a genuine part of the ministry, now, today, that man travels the country as one of the, foremost, one of the leading advocates of the homosexual movement and often travels with Elton John. And that leaves Dr. Tom Farrell to just scratch his head. I mean, he says, I was fooled. You know, 20 years ago, the man just seemed to have everything lined up how we would expect someone to live a Christian life. And yet now, uh, you know, there would be very little, if anything, to suggest that that man was saved. But, you know, we are to live, we are to, we are to endure and continue until the end, till Jesus Christ returns. We don't get a break. We don't get to take a weekend off. We don't get to go to Las Vegas and assume nobody's going to know we're there and, you know, we can just kind of take a little hiatus from being a Christian. No, we're supposed to stick it out until the end. And then, uh, and then verse 7, again, Paul reminds us, in, or verse 11, that ultimately everything we do is supposed to be done for the glory of God. Nothing is to be, everything is to be done for God's glory and nothing is to be done for our own glory. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 let nothing be done through strife or vain glory and then jump down to verse 27 and uh, you know it with regard to um, enduring till the end you know I think of first John two nineteen. it says they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would no doubt have continued with us but they went out that they, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And, you know, that, that verse isn't referring to changing churches. That verse is referring to making a distinction between those who just appear to be Christians and those who really are. That's what that's about. You know, changing churches, that, that's not what that verse is about. There are legitimate reason, reasons to change churches. Churches abandon the faith. Churches you know, get liberal and just abandon everything that the Word of God teaches. But that verse is referring to, again, the distinction between true believers and unbelievers. But in verse 27, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." Being, letting our conversation be worthy of the gospel, that is not referring to us being worthy of our salvation. We know that. We know we're never worthy of our salvation. We're only worthy of death. We know we're saved by grace. What that's referring to is just, being worth, just living our life in a way that, re, that reflects that we appreciate the great price that Christ paid for us. Living our life in a way that reflects that our real citizenship is in heaven and not here on this earth. And then uh, Paul reminds them that they need to be steadfast in their behavior. They need to be continuous in their, in their living out their Christian life. He reminds them that obviously he's not always there. He's going to be absent. And, um, you know, they need to be aware that what, what Paul is really encouraging them to, do, them to do is to be Christians all the time, be full-time Christians. And we're not to live 
We're not to be a different person when we're at home or school or work than we are when we're at church. We're to be the same in all of those places. And that's what Paul is referring to when he says, whether I be present or absent. I mean, he was very commendable towards them. Back in verse 5, he said he had received word that they had continued from the very beginning until that day. But he was encouraging them not to rest on their laurels, not to, to, to have any pride about that, but then to resolve to continue to do that until Christ returned. Because Paul knew very likely he wasn't going to be there to see him through to the end. So he was just encouraging them not to give up and to be full-time Christians. And then in this verse 27, notice the unity that the church is to possess in its goal. We are to have the same goal, the same purpose. We're to be striving together. I find that word interesting in there. Um, You know, with one mind, not just striving for the faith, but striving together. Um, really taking into consideration that what we're doing, how does that reflect on every other person that is represented here in this church? That we are to be striving together. The church's goal is to obey Christ. Um, Our goal, you know, we can get sidetracked on a lot of things. Our goal is not to have a school. Our goal shouldn't be to have a school that's big enough for a sports team or to, to have a building that is big enough to get approval from anyone in the community. Those, those things are, those things are irrelevant. That is not what's being, what, what is being referred to. There's, we're striving to build the life of each one in this church to help each one of us grow spiritually and to be as much like Christ as each one of us can. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Um, not what size it is, but what sort it is. And I looked that word sort up in my uh, Strong's Concordance to see what the Greek meaning of that was, and it said quality. Not quantity, quality. And, you know, that's one of the things I appreciate about Pastor. He keeps pointing that out in the Bible, that the emphasis is never on the size of our work or numbers. It's on the quality. It's on our dedication. It's on the state of our heart as we serve the Lord. And then as we strive together for unity, we recognize that every one of us has a whole different set of abilities and talents and resources. We're not all the same. We all have gifts that the others don't have. But we're to use those to build each other up, to, to, do, uh, to ultimately bring glory to God and to, to build up each one in the church. I think of, uh, you know, I remember when we were, uh, I remember years ago when we would, we would read we were always reading books to our children usually before they would go to bed and i remember that um particularly with tony i remember that when we would read him books it seemed like we'd go in his room and he had several shelves i think he had hundreds of books and i think we read the same three every time (laughs) i mean we must have read them a couple hundred times i don't remember how many times we read them but we alexis and i would sneak in there at night and we would take those three and hide them and then we would come in there later and we'd say tony what books do you want us to read before you go to bed and he'd look and look, and he'd say, I can't find the ones I want. <laughs> we said, oh, they're over there, okay. So he would get them, and I remember those three. And one of them was um, The Little Fish That Got Away, and one of them was Mickey Mouse and His Boat, and another was The Three Little Pigs. And I remember it didn't take a lot of effort to find spiritual applications for those books. And I remember thinking, and I've thought about this many times since then, I think of each, the life of each person in this church as a brick house Um, you know if you think about I did a little bit of calculation if you think that just an average size home would if we had a brick exterior as opposed to you know aluminum or vinyl siding or something like that the average house would require over 10,000 bricks Uh, 
And, um, you know, as I've thought about that many times over the years, if we were to take each one of those and evaluate it as to what it represented, if we were looking at that in, in a spiritual sense, that each one of our lives, each one of our spiritual houses was represented by those bricks, if we were to take each one of those, what would each one of those, what, what would be the story behind each one of those? Because, you know, what, whatever, wherever we're at now, whatever, however God has brought us to where we are in our Christian walk, none of us can look back and, and point to just one or two things and say, you know, God has made me what I am today because of one thing that happened when I was seven and one thing that happened when I was 15. It doesn't work like that. It's the totality of everything that has happened. It's the whole magnitude. That's why I think of a spiritual house of bricks, because I think, you know, if there are 10,000 bricks represented, I, I see that as, as representative of the fact that every single thing that everybody in this church does is significant. Every one of those bricks could tell a different story. You know, if we were to take that house apart and, and look at each one, one of them might say, you know, Roger Brown taught Sunday school on this day. Rick Uralamick taught Sunday school on this day. You know, Mrs. Gonzalez taught VBS. Or somebody gave money for this. Or somebody drove the bus. You know, whatever it is, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of those would say, pastor preached on this date or pastor preached this sermon or you know maybe hundreds or thousands of those would say mom and dad led the family in devotions but but all of those experiences contribute to each one of us and what we are spiritually and we need to keep that in mind we you know when we're striving together to strengthen each one of us and to build each one of us up that is what i that's how i see it you know i i look at it and i think you know, I have a son who's getting ready to go off to college, and I think, what kind of a spiritual house does he have? You know, does he have a spiritual house made of straw where, you know, uh, as soon as it gets tough, as soon as times get difficult, he'll just abandon the truth? Or does he have a spiritual house made of sticks where maybe he'll stand up for the truth, but, you know, if it gets too hard, you know, maybe not for very long? Or does he have a spiritual house made of bricks? where he's going to stand up for the truth regardless of the circumstances in the face of adversity. And so, you know, when we would read those books, I would think of those spiritual applications to those books. And, you know, again, that one to me just underscores the importance that, each, that the role of each person in this church can play. You know, we're not, you know, I mean, in this church it's very obvious that you know just about everybody here is a contributor you know i mean there are many churches where they're just begging to get people to do things and in this church i mean it's just been wonderful the three and a half years i've been here that just doesn't seem to be a problem but you know my encouragement to you along those lines is that don't think that whatever you have to contribute is insignificant or that it, it's not going to be a big help to anyone that's just not the case. The Bible, doesn't, the Bible doesn't support that. You know, like Pastor just said the other day, you know, God gives different people different things. Some people are two-talent people. Some people are five-talent people. Some people are ten-talent people. But the important thing, according to verse 27, is that we're striving together and trying to maintain that unity in the church, not trying to outdo each other, looking at each person's role as, as important. You know, I mean, if you flip back over to, to chapter 2, verse 3 again, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. I underline that word nothing in my Bible. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Nothing. Let everything be done for the glory of God, but let nothing be done for our own glory. 
And then uh, verses 28 and 29 says, verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Um, we are to courageously strive for the faith. We're not to be intimidated by those that oppose us, the unbelievers, those, those that we consider our adversaries. We are to strive courageously for the faith. And you know, our confidence in what we're doing uh, is a symbol of our salvation, but it's also, according to this verse, a symbol of their destruction. I wrote down what one of the commentaries that I read said because I, I thought it was very appropriate. This, this one that I read said, By striving together in love and confidence, the Philippians would be living proof to their opponents that the message of Jesus Christ is true. Living proof. You know, when people look at Westwood Heights Baptist Church, do they say, those people really believe that? Or do they see, you know, infighting and strife and competition and things like that? They shouldn't see that. They should see each of us striving together, supporting one another. That's, that's the proof to them that we really believe and are confident in the message that scriptures have for us. And then verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. For, the word for, denotes that our suffering is the proof of our salvation. That's our assurance. Um... It's, you know, we don't, we don't like to look at it this way, but our suffering is a gift from God. That's something that God gives us to authenticate our belief, to authenticate our faith, to demonstrate that we're true believers. How we handle that adversity that God has given us, how we deal with that suffering, that's, that's going to indicate a lot about, you know, our, the maturity level that we have as believers. And uh, just in closing... Um, I think the emphasis on these verses is fellowship. You know, when it comes to the church, nothing compares to the church. We fellowship with each one, with, with each one here because of one thing, that's Jesus Christ. We're not here because, you know, we, all the people here are so wonderful. I love all the people in this church, but that's not why I'm here. I mean, there are other things that we could be doing. There's endless things in the world that can compete for our competition. You know, we could join the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or the, you know, whatever, the Freemasons or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. There's all kinds of things out there we could do if we were just looking to fulfill our social needs. But we're not doing that. We are here because we are truly fellowshipping around Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ goes out of this church, then hopefully most of us will go out of this church. Because we're not here just because we love the people. That's, that's great, and that's that's a wonderful thing that comes as a result of our unity but you know going back to verse 9 what Paul was encouraging these people to do was to grow and the way they were to do that was to grow in their knowledge of Christ um, and you know just my last thought was that's the kind of fellowship that Paul and Silas had I mean can you imagine being in the situation that they were in and yet being able to behave the way that they behaved to, to have the joy that they had that wasn't that joy was not there because Paul liked Silas so much and because Silas liked Paul so much. That's not why they had that joy. They had that joy because Jesus Christ was there, and they both had Jesus Christ there. 
And so that's what my encouragement would be to this church is that we all recognize that we've got to keep Jesus Christ the center of everything that we do, and he's got to remain the focal point of everything that we do. If we get sidetracked on trying to please each one of our own little agendas, uh, our church will never be a church that can be presented to Jesus Christ by himself as a glorious church. So, All right, let's go ahead and stand, and I'll dismiss us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for, for this church. I thank you for your faithfulness to this church. I thank you for, um, I thank you for your word. Uh, I'm truly grateful for the privilege of living in a country where we can gather like this without fear of persecution. I'm thankful for like-minded believers here that uh, share the same goals that, that each one of us should. Uh, I just thank you that you've put us together and that you have allowed us to uh, just experience your love and, and your blessing. And I, I ask that that would continue. I pray that you would continue to, to uh, guide your hand of blessing over this church, that we would be glorifying you in everything that we do and everything that we strive to do. And uh, I just thank you again for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you.